These have been some extraordinary days in the life of the church. You know, when you accept Christ, you know about eternal life, and then the scriptures also speak of abundant life, full and meaningful. And there are many ups and downs, I know that. I experience them as you do. But the abundant life is what we're privy to as well because of the grace of Almighty God. And we surely have tasted it in these last days. Look at where we are, folks. Uh, the Lord Jesus has brought us here, surely through marvelous leadership, human agents, but it's by divine uh, grace and supply that we find ourselves in this magnificent facility today and have already um, had marvelous experiences that many of us can uh, speak of. And yet, um, I'm sad to say that there will be some even gathered here tonight who are going to walk away from it all. That's just statistically probably an accurate statement. I don't know how many. I don't want it to be me. I don't want it to be any of you. But some are going to say, I've had enough of that community, that, uh, that Savior. Uh, some here are actually going to turn their backs on Jesus. It has happened historically. Uh, and it will happen again till the time of his return. And usually the incidence of such a sad and tragic event uh, comes about in times of persecution and opposition. And uh, certainly we're seeing more of that around the world and even much to our dismay here on the home front. So I want you to know the temptation to so want to fit in and avoid the knocks is going to be so great and accelerated in the days ahead. Your value system, your convictions, those things which we have so freely been able to proclaim and stand for here, God's view of marriage and relations and all the rest are coming under such fire that an increasing number of ones who've identified with Christ will cease to. And for that reason, I'm glad we're continuing in our series in Hebrews, which we have termed the letter of better. And tonight I've taken the title with regard to the Lord Jesus, uh, He is better than what you have left Him for. The text before us will really address this issue. He is better than anything you may be tempted to leave him uh, for. So I want to read to you a published article that I found in a periodical about a lady whose name will be mentioned, but again, I only do it because it's in the public domain. Here it is. Teresa McBain has a secret, uh, one she's terrified to reveal. I'm currently an active pastor, she says, and I'm also an atheist. I live a double life. I feel pretty good on Monday, but by Thursday, when Sunday's right around the corner, I start having stomach aches and headaches, just knowing that I have to stand up and say things I no longer believe in. McBain glances nervously around the room. It's a Sunday. Normally, she would be preaching at her church in Tallahassee, Florida, but here she is sneaking away to the American Atheists Convention in Bethesda, Maryland. Her secret is taking a toll, eating at her conscience 
as she goes about her pastoral duties week after week, two sermons every Sunday, singing hymns, praying for the sick, uh, when she doesn't believe in the God she's praying to. McBain, 44, was raised a conservative Southern Baptist. Her dad was a pastor, and she felt the call of God when she was six. She had questions, of course, about conflicts in the Bible, for example, or the role of women. Uh, she says she sometimes felt that she was serving a taskmaster of a God whose standards she never quite met. For years, McBain set her concerns aside, but when she became a United Methodist pastor nine years ago, she started asking sharper questions. She thought they would make her faith stronger. In reality, she says, as I worked through them, I found that religion had so many holes in it that I just progressed through stages where I couldn't believe it. The questions haunted her. Is Jesus the only way to God? Would a loving God torment people eternally? Is there any evidence of God's existence at all? And one day she crossed a line. I kind of realized, she said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe. And in the moment that I uttered that word, I stumbled and choked on that word, atheist, but it felt right. On March 26th at the American Atheist Convention in Bethesda, McBain seems almost giddy. The day before, she decided she would go before the conference's 1,500 or so non-believers and announce that she is now an official, officially an atheist. I'm nervous, she says, but at the same time, I'm so excited. I slept like a baby last night because I knew I wasn't going to have to live a lie anymore. Such freedom. Moments later, in the darkened, cavernous conference room, McBain steps on stage. My name is Teresa, she begins. I'm a pastor currently serving a Methodist church, at least up to this point. The audience laughs. And I'm an atheist now. Hundreds of people jump to their feet. They hoot and clap for more than a minute. McBain then apologizes to them for being, as she put it, a hater. She said, I was the one on the right track. You were the ones that were going to burn in hell. And I'm happy to say as I stand before you right now, I'm going to burn with you. A few minutes later, McBain strides off the stage into a waiting crowd. One man is crying as he tells her that her speech is one of the most moving things I've heard or seen in years. Another woman says she too had been a born-again Christian. Join the club, she says as she hugs McBain. Back at home, McBain doesn't hesitate when she's asked what she misses most about her old life. I miss the music, she says. McBain sang in church choirs, worship bands most of her life, and even though she no longer believes the words, she still catches herself singing praise songs. She says she also misses the relationships. She'll often pick up the phone to call someone and then realize she can't. And she misses the ritual and regularity of church life. It's what I know. It's, it's what I knew, she says. When it's pointed out that she hasn't said whether or not she misses God, McBain pauses. No, 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 she says. I can't say that I do. All the accoutrements of Christianity. I like the music. I sing. I like the relationships. I'll miss them. I like the ritual. God? I don't miss him at all. 
It's interesting how you could come so close to the authentic article and miss him entirely. And it's a very dangerous place to be. And that's why, under inspiration, the writer of Hebrews chapter 6 warns such ones, and I fear there may be such ones even in our midst tonight. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. I'll read it to you. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. That's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ. To be careful about the word elementary, uh, we, we give it a negative connotation. It means the fundamental foundational things. These are good things. Uh, these, are the, these are the building blocks of the faith. Why, what such things? We are sinners and owe a debt to an otherwise unapproachably holy God, and he solved the sin problem for us by taking the penalty thereof upon his own son who became enfleshed and was pierced through on a cross in our place. These are the elementary things of the faith, but you don't stay there. You must move on. Now, here's what happened in the writer's audience. It was mixed. He didn't know who truly accepted the fundamentals of the faith and who did not, and so he addressed the entire crowd. You see, everyone in the crowd heard the elementary, the fundamental, potentially life-saving truths about the Lord Jesus, but here's where they parted ways. Though all heard, only some accepted what they heard. And the writer couldn't distinguish at that point wheat from tares, who's who. They were all mixed together. You said, but, 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 but this person is always here. But this, this, this person sings in the choir. This person loves. So did Teresa McBain. She heard. She preached. She taught the elementary things about the Christ. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, we have to leave those in order to press on to maturity. The elementary things are, are part A. You have to move on to B and to C. Those things have to lead you into a saving, intimate communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a message to be heard and to which we give intellectual assent. It has to be internalized, combined by faith. It has to be transforming so that you look like the one you say you have heard of. It has to change your life. There has to be evidences thereof. How could you be inhabited by the Creator on high and someone not say you're different now? What is it about? What is it about you? So the writer says, let's press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Listen, every religious person speaks of those things. Repent. Faith towards God. But, 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 but the true born-again believer moves past repentance from dead works and instead, instead is gripped by the reality of repentance towards God. It's not just turning away from lifestyle. I used to do this, now I do that. It's turning from self-righteousness to the Savior. It's a change of dependence on my own dead works. They're dead in terms of their capacity to win me favor with God. And instead, I turn to the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Everyone, every religious leader of any stripe is talking about, as it says here, faith towards God. But that's not good enough. It has to be faith in the one who is the way, the only way to God. So you see, there were many in the midst who had the right words and the right vocabulary and sang the songs. 
But we're in real danger of walking away from the faith because this group, these Hebrews, at the time were suffering severe persecution, the likes of which we may be in store for in our day as well. And there were other matters that these people were stuck on. Verse 2, like instruction about washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Important things for sure, but ritualized things, at least the first two. Rituals are important. They represent good things, but they're a mere shadow of what they represent. And these wrangled over the proper methodology of washings and uh, laying on of hands, biblically ordained rituals for sure, but you could go crazy arguing over the right mode and method bum, 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 and miss the whole deal. They're supposed to point us to the Lord Jesus. These are a shadow. He's the substance. And then, then, then they were stuck on the timing of things yet to come, like resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We ought to be interested in those issues, but not preoccupied. Big difference. I'm telling you, you can break communion up because someone has this notion of the order of future events and another one has a different one. Come on, these things are far bigger than us in any way. We're supposed to be living in the present in light of the indisputable non-negotiable reality of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We leave the timing of these things up to him. So this is what they were doing. So the writer says, move past it. Let these things lead you to the Lord Jesus, not peripheral issues, but the core of the faith. Christ is the center. And then he says in verse 3, this will do. We will do this. We will move on to maturity if God permits. What does that mean? Why would God grant us eyes to see if we have no wish to see, no desire? Why would he? If being omniscient, knowing the end from the beginning, why would he waste more revelation on those who have already rejected what he has given? You see? And now we move on to a passage of Scripture I really was praying we would deal with after the rapture. But apparently not, unless I slow down here and maybe in the next few. Verses 4 to 6. Can I tell you something? Uh, I think these three verses possibly are the devil's favorite uh, passage of Scripture. I'll tell you why in just a second. That's a terrible thing to say about the Word of God, isn't it? But I'll tell you why I say that in just a second. First, let's take a look at it. Verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, you see all these characteristics? And there's more in verse 5. And have tasted the good Word of God. He's describing people, a people group who, of whom all these things are true. And the powers of the age to come, verse 6. And then... They've had all these experiences and then have fallen away. In their case, it is impossible to remove, re renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So here's the deal. Um, who's that speaking of? Look, <clears throat> did Teresa McBain, the lady whose story I read to you earlier, um, did she 
did she lose what she had? Or did she never have what she said she had? That's kind of what's going on here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to vote <laughs> on, on what I think. It's just one vote tonight. On, on what I th- but there's always emails for you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, so here's my deal. I, I, I would like to prove to you verses 4 to 6 are not speaking to born-again believers. Uh, I, I just... But all these characteristics surely look like they describe a regenerated person. All right, so, so bear with me. Here's the first characteristic. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, wait a second, they heard the gospel of grace, and they understood it. They were not in the dark any longer regarding the way of salvation. And why not? Because God's Spirit graciously enlightened their minds so as to understand it. This is the grace that actually precedes salvation. The Bible says we're spiritually dead. Tell me how a dead person could respond to the gospel. Unless God's wonderful Spirit enlightens us so that we could respond. They were enlightened in that sense. That doesn't mean they accepted it. It just means they understood it. There was no question in their mind about what the gospel of grace is. Here's the second characteristic. And have tasted of the heavenly gift. I think the heavenly gift is the Lord Jesus. They tasted of him, but they never received him by a definite act of faith. Folks! It's possible to taste a food item and then spew it from your mouth because you don't like the taste. You didn't ingest it. You just tasted it. Many people try Jesus, don't have the taste buds, the appetite for him. Nothing has changed on the inside. Then there's this. Uh, They've been made partakers. Well, this one really will prove me wrong, you might say. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. It says partakers, not possessors. Partakers, not possessors of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit brought them understanding of the message of salvation. It doesn't mean they went on from that to accept Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts us, does he not? of sin and judgment and righteousness. That doesn't mean you respond just because you're convicted. Sometimes people harden their hearts to it and ignore it. So that's what happened. And, And have tasted the good word of God. What does that mean? They heard the gospel. They were moved. They were drawn to it. They didn't accept it. You know what they were like? They were like the seed described as being sown by the sower in Matthew chapter 13, falling upon rocky ground. I read it to you, verses 20 to 21. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, that's kind of a metaphor, seed, for God's word. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They had an experience. The song moved them. An invitation was given. Who knows? Something moved them to respond for sure. They received the word of God with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, 
immediately he falls away. So that's what was happening with some who the writer of Hebrews is addressing. That's what could happen to some here. Don't do it. Jesus is far better than anything you may be tempted to leave him for. But they also, it says, tasted of the powers of the age to come. You know what that means? They saw miracles. Miracles which confirmed the message of the gospel as originally preached. But wait, just... Not only did... Do you know some of these to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing might even have participated in a miracle? For instance, think of the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that one, loaves and fishes, and the Lord's capacity to multiply so that there was a, a superabundant supply of food? Good night. Some of these very ones could have been part of it. And later of them, the Lord said in John 6, 26, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The miracles, which were to be a backdrop for his message, they missed. They just wanted the food, not spiritual bread. You see? So then, in my humble yet accurate opinion, this text is not talking about Christians at all. It's talking about those who profess to know Christ and who, in fact, congregate, perhaps even regularly, with those who truly do. So I tell you, this passage, I think, is one of Satan's favorite passages because he uses it repeatedly, it seems to me, to persuade legitimately redeemed, genuine Christians, usually at a point of weakness, physical, emotional, financial, marital, interpersonal. He moves in for the kill. Uh, Satan uses this text to, to persuade those wounded, truly born-again believers that they have, in fact, lost their salvation. <clears throat> Not true. Not possible. This is a tough passage of Scripture. Here's a principle of Bible study. Use the sum total of clear Scripture on an issue to interpret obscure scripture on the same issue. So when you get a chance, look up John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. Look up Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Look up 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Look up Romans 8, 28 to 39. I know this is too fast. This is the way we get you to buy the tapes. That's a joke. Not really. But I will read you this passage. I love this. This is so good. This is for you if you're a Christian. John 6, 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me. The Lord Jesus is saying this. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. <sighs> if it were possible for you to evade the loving grasp of the Son and the Father, yeah, you could walk away. Ain't possible. His is a love that will not let you go. So this is written, in my opinion, to readers who had professed identification, and experiences with Christ. 
but had none. I might have told you this. Years ago, I was, uh, I was in England. I was in the military for a while, and then I became a missionary in Germany. And I, I used to attend a, a British church in a place called Bury St. Edmunds. Just unbelievable historic place. The church was built in the 12th century. It was magnificent. Had a pipe organ. Good night. The sounds that came out of it were glorious. And one time I went to the rector of the church, the equivalent of our pastor, the rector. He became a friend. His name was Roy. I said, Roy, the guy playing the organ. Good night. He is inspired. That is so great. I'm so glad he's using his gifts to bring glory to his Savior. And rector Roy said to me rather casually, he doesn't know the Lord. He said it's like an art form in England. Guys like this are on contract. They just go from church to church playing the, uh, playing the pipe organ. See, he was a Theresa McBain. He's a guy playing the hymns of the, of the faith in a musically uh, attractive manner. Did not accept the message behind the music. This passage is written to folks, it seems to me, folks, folks like that. And, uh, and of these, the writer writes in verse 6, it's impossible, impossible to renew them again to repentance. Whoa, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. Why is it impossible? Well, because it says there, because they again crucify to themselves the Son of God. He was crucified once, remember? A couple thousand years ago, trumped up charges, terrible. They crucify again to themselves. In effect, what they're saying uh, is the same thing uh, uh, the Lord's accusers said then. He's blaspheming. He's not who he said he is. He's doing crazy things. He's causing trouble. He's a pretender to the throne. He's fraud. Crucify him! And and folks who walk away from Christ, having identified him only in in a superficial way, they cannot be renewed to repentance again because to themselves, in their hearts, they're essentially saying, hey, I tried Jesus, but he didn't work for me. Faith in him is a lie. It's a sham. I know what I'm talking about. I was a member of Sagemont Church for 20 years. But the Christian faith is worthless, you see? That's who the writer is writing to. And the writer declares it's impossible to renew such a one to repentance because that one has essentially crucified the Lord Jesus Christ again. Folks, this text is not about Christians who possess Christ. It's about those who only profess Christ. And the next two verses, in my opinion, make this clear. It's an agricultural metaphor in my opinion, that lend the key interpretation to the three verses we just read. Look at verse 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So you have two groups of people implied by that agricultural metaphor. One group is in for a blessing, and the other group is in for burning. A Christian is not going to burn under the wrath of Almighty God because his wrath has already been fully poured out on his son. There's no wrath for the child of God. Blessing for one group, burning for the other. Can you see? 
the distinction here. Now verse 9, but beloved. This clinches the deal for me, folk. He's been speaking of one group in the prior verses, and now by contrast, but beloved. Never in the Bible is an unsaved person referred to this way. Never, never, never. But my fellow Christians, in other words, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. What a stark change in pronouns. Verse 6, them. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. Verse 9, we are convinced of better things concerning you. We've moved from the them to the you, which is you. (laughs) Don't be one of the them. Be one of the you. And the writer said, we're convinced of better things concerning you. What things? Things that accompany salvation. Things that belong to the experience of salvation. Like what? Bible reading. Listen to me. If you don't find yourself having more of an interest in the Bible after you prayed the prayer to accept Christ than before, come talk to us. Something's wrong. Prayer is one of the things that accompanies salvation. If you think it's a waste of time, if you're not wanting to be more actively engaged in that private and public communion with the Lord, which we call prayer, examine yourself. Evangelism, if you think your faith is a private, personal matter, not to be shared with someone else for fear that you might step on toes or offend them, be careful, because sharing the good news is one of the things of salvation. And there's something else, verse 10. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Folks, loving God, and as a result, serving others and continuing to do so as a lifestyle does not earn you salvation. It is the evidence thereof. Soon we'll hear from a group. I want to invite them. Uh, Buddy, could you bring your group up, this marvelous group going to Kenya out of love for God? Um, Are they still here? Oh, they're practicing. Oh, thank you so much for helping us out. What should I do? (laughs) Hey, thank you, Jerry. That's really good. Yeah. We have this down to a science. (laughs) Listen, you're going to hear from this group in just a second, but here's my point. Hey, thanks for coming, guys. We're sorry we're early. It's really great to see you. Hey, good to see you, brother. Nice to see you. Thank you for doing this. We appreciate it. Thought the rapture took place. (laughs) We're not ready yet, buddy. Not yet. We're not ready yet. As you get older, the hearing, you, you know, they go. But here's the point of verse 10. Here's the, these are believers. Why? Out of love for God, they're ministering, they're serving to others. Again, the, and they're continuing to do it through thick and thin, through persecution, through all the ups and downs. They're continuing to do it. And their staying power, their persistence in loving God and manifesting their love for him by taking care of the people for whom he died is an evidence of their salvation. So listen to this. If you're tempted to walk away from the Lord Jesus, would you please extend to us the privilege of a private conversation? Let us talk with you, please. 
It's very, very serious. Where are you going to go? He is better, I'm telling you, than anyone or anything you may be tempted to leave him for. The Christian says, I have searched over and over, and there is no one like him. The African Christian who speaks Swahili says, Nemata futa kote kote. I have searched over and over. Hakuna na hatakuwepo. And there is no one like him. These people believe it, and they're going to Africa to tell people about it. 